This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. This is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And I'm Cheryl Coolman. And I'm Nick Ashburn. And we're delighted to be here today. We are in our second half of our segment. We're here live every Thursday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. And then we're, we're played during the week and available on, on the app. Yeah, you can find us on the SiriusXM app, something that Cheryl and I both listen to, I think, quite often. We do, we do. Maybe and not I'm... to ourselves, but to other, <laughs> other shows, I, other I, channels. It is true. I, I do not listen to myself. I, I suppose I should at some point. I do sometimes weird. only to be like, well, how? How idiotic did I sound? How how awful was I? I think I sound human, right? <laughs> <laughs> so rather than a full professional on this, I, I, we, we bring the sort of common voice to the discussion. I guess so. So I uh, just want to remind our listeners that we will be closing our segment. Our, our last half hour is going to be an, an open call. You know, Nick and I will be talking. Uh, we'll be listening to calls. You can give us a call at one eight four four wharton 844-942-7866. You can even email us if you want. We could answer your questions. That's businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and we will discuss that. Um, if we don't get calls, we'll just chat. Maybe we'll just I'll chat away. Nick, but Nick this sing. is such a great <laughs> – this, this upcoming guest is a great segment to call in because we have an expert on healthcare, and I, and I you know – I'm going to ask all the dumb questions today. I can tell you that much. <laughs> okay, so Tammy Luby, are you prepared for the uh, dumb questions from Nick and me? I'm sure there won't be any. any don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can challenge you. <laughs> okay. So, so Tammy, um, as, as Cheryl mentioned, you are an expert in um, in healthcare and, and for economic CNN, mobility and economic mobility for CNN Money. Um, so, we're delighted to have you on the show, and um, you know we. It's certainly a hot topic. Um, things did not happen maybe the way that Congress and, and our president hoped for. Um, but I guess let's let's have you very simply for our listeners, because some of our listeners may listen to our show not thinking about, uh, you know, CNN money or, or rather watching CNN regularly or MSNBC or any show uh, channel on television to know exactly like what's happening. So can you help us set up some of the issues that we're facing with with the um Let's see. How, what's the official title for Obamacare? The Affordable Care Act. Yes, exactly. I was going to go for the longer one. I knew it was the Affordable Care Act. but Patient thought... Protection <laughs> and Affordable Care Act. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, I mean, a, a lot of people have always asked me, you know, what is working? Is Obamacare good? Is it bad? Is it working? Is it not working? And the answer really is it depends on who you are. You know, for a lot of senior citizens and not senior citizens, for older Americans in their 50s and 60s, for people who are lower income, above the poverty level, but lower income, Obamacare has opened up insurance for them because it had often been priced out for them, but it uh, offers a lot of federal subsidies to be able to give them coverage. So you are getting a lot of people who have insurance for the first time and for People who are actually under the poverty level or just above it in the 31 states in D.C. who who live in the states that expanded Medicaid, they can actually get insurance for the first time. So Mm -hmm. this is amazing for them. And for people with pre-existing conditions, 
it offers coverage they couldn't get coverage before. Yeah. They were, you know, either priced out or locked out of insurance plans if they had cancer, if they had even like a broken leg or any kind of problem years earlier. They can get coverage and they can get robust coverage because, as you may have heard, Obamacare requires insurers to cover these 10 essential health benefits, including maternity, prescription drugs, substance abuse, a lot of that. And then for people, what, one thing I was surprised about right after the election, I, I emailed, I put a query in my story and said, you know, how has Obamacare affected you? Please write in. And one thing I was surprised about was that a lot of people who had started their own businesses said mm. that they would have never been able to do that without Obamacare because now they can get coverage on the individual market, particularly those who had conditions. I spoke to an attorney in the South who was working for a firm but really wanted to start his own business, but he had MS. And there was no mm. way he was ever going to leave corporate coverage having that type of illness because his coverage was, you know, his his medication was thousands of dollars. So he's gone out on his own and has his own firm because he knows that he can get coverage on the individual market. And but, so that's so it's sort of interesting because if I reflect on on the debate, maybe all the way back to 2009, 2010, um, it's interesting because it might have afforded people the opportunity to leave their sort of corporate job because they had mm-hmm. employer-based insurance to, so that they could start their own company. But then juxtaposed with the the argument that it was going to hurt small business too, and and you know be owner onerous for those. Um, what's your take on that sort yeah, of how do you debate? reconcile those? Yeah. Yes. Right. Well, I mean, first of all, the smallest businesses are not affected because for people who have, uh, you know, employ fewer than 50 people, it doesn't affect them. So we're not talking about, you know, tiny businesses. For larger, for mid-sized businesses, I guess, not everyone offered insurance. You know, among most large employers, even though there is this employer mandate, which requires businesses over 50 to provide coverage to their employees who work 30 hours or more, you know, for large businesses, it didn't really affect them because most of them co- cover their employees anyway. It's considered a, a perk. It's a draw for, to get employees. They want to offer robust coverage. For mm-hmm. mid-sized businesses, yes, for, we've heard from some people that they either didn't want to expand to have, uh, you know, more than 50 employees or it was hurting them because not only some of them may have offered coverage, but they may have offered skimpier coverage and now they would have been required to offer this robust coverage. So, yes, there was an issue. But we have it's been difficult to determine whether this has actually hurt uh, cost jobs because we're also at a time when the economy is growing. So, of course, everybody's adding jobs. But has there been anecdotal evidence that it's cost some jobs and some employers have not expanded or have shrunk their payrolls? Yes, but overall, most employers say that, that, you know, it has not affected them, even small businesses. Yeah, and, and you know, but the... where where it has affected people though is, and just to say, because I had laid out all of where it's working for some people, you know, I want to say where it's not working sure. for people, and where it's not working is, uh, I've also heard from a lot of uh, readers that there are people out there who either don't want to be insured and it's their choice, or they want to have the so-called catastrophic plans. They don't want this robust coverage. And they don't have that option anymore. So you have healthier Americans, even people who are older, who now have to get these robust plans, and they cost more because, you know, the lower your deductible or the more coverage you get, the higher your premium. So they can no longer get these 
what we would call skimpy plans, but it's the plans that they want with the high deductibles and the low premiums. They can't get that anymore. And you have younger Americans who are I mean, part of the Affordable Care Act is actually having younger Americans subsidize the cost of older Americans because older Americans are the ones who have, you know, generally have higher medical costs, so their premiums are higher. So the Affordable Care Act restricted insurers from charging older Americans, people in their 60s, only have to pay three times as much as younger Americans, people in their early 20s. But that means that people in their early 20s are paying more. Well, and it did allow that the um, you could stay on your parents' coverage until age 26, which I know for a lot of students was was important, an important addition. Right, if their parents had coverage. If their parents had coverage, right. could afford to put them on. <laughs> right, right. So, yes, but yeah, and that is one of the most popular provisions is having kids stay on their parents' plan until age 26, and none of the efforts in Congress would have repealed that. So I might be making a gross overgeneralization, but if we reflect on the political debate over the last, you know, several months um, and I guess the failed attempt to completely repeal Obamacare, um, were you surprised based on, you know, your reporting over the last several years of, of the, you know, the healthcare uh, industry, were you surprised that there wasn't a clear path forward for, you know, improvements or repeal within Congress? You know, I think we know, obviously, that they had hoped to follow the 2015 repeal plan that Speaker Ryan had put forth that both houses voted for and approved, and it was it was vetoed by President Obama. And that would have repealed major portions of Obamacare initially and given uh, the, the Congress two years to come up with a replacement plan. And that was sort of initially the path that people thought was was going to happen, but it became rather clear quickly that that people were not comfortable. Lawmakers were not comfortable. They were hearing from constituents. They were hearing from companies. They were hearing from insurers. They were hearing from everyone. We do not want to repeal Obamacare and, you know, go into an, an abyss where you have two years to come up with something else. We need to know what you're actually going to come up with. Yeah. So that's where repeal became repeal and replace. And they didn't really have a replace plan because it's, you know, we may have heard healthcare is complicated. <laughs> it's Who, knew? Who knew? And, you know, it's not that easy to repeal Obamacare. One of my, my editor actually came up with the, you know, idea of Obamacare Jenga, which we, uh, we unfortunately were never able to build, but we wanted to do something with that <laughs> idea. But it's, it's, a, it's a very large, complicated act. And a lot of the pieces are interrelated. So once you start, you know, messing with having older people pay more than younger people, if you start messing with that, then, you know, other things start to fall apart. You know, the reason the individual mandate, which requires that most people get insurance or pay a penalty, that is one of the least liked provisions in the Affordable Care Act. And it's one of the things that all of the Republican plans wanted to eliminate. But you can't just eliminate it because it brings in a lot of the healthier, younger people that insurers need. And it's well known, even the the Republicans acknowledge, that you have to have some type of uh, incentive, either a carrot or a stick, mainly a stick in some cases, to you know, incent people to remain continuously covered. Because if you start having all the healthy people sit out 
and only come in when they get a car ac- into a car accident or when they, you know, God forbid, get cancer, it's going to screw up the market. And insurers will not accept that. So, you know, they had seven years to come up with a replacement plan. They never did. And it's not easy. And clearly there are factions within the Republican Party. You had the conservatives and the moderates, and they could not agree. Yeah. And you're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're talking to uh, Tammy Luby, who's the economic mobility and healthcare expert for CNN Money, and we're talking about healthcare. Yeah, such a such a hot topic, a tough topic, and so complicated, so complicated. Yeah. Um, you know, on Dollars and Change, we talk about so many you know diverse topics, but this is one that we. I wouldn't say we avoid, but it is—it's not our wheelhouse, and it's—it's yeah. it's complicated. But um, so we're delighted to have you as an expert on the show. Um, one thing that I noticed during the the debate over the last four months was just, you know, the idea of you know repeal Obamacare. You know, just people really wanted to do that, and then when they the threat happened, you know, it 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 changed. Was there something specifically? Was it just about taking away their care, or was it? about the branding of Obamacare? You know, what really happened that people said, wait, 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 wait a second. Hold it. Is that what, yeah, it's sort of like when push came to shove and you're like, hold it, that's what it means? Yeah, this, wait, Obamacare is what I've actually been per- experiencing? Is- well, I think a lot of people, I mean, you know, certain states didn't call it Obamacare or, or the, you know, exchanges you have in New York, for instance, where I am. It's the, you know, New York State of Health. In Kentucky, where, uh, you know, McConnell is from, the the Senate Majority Leader, Mm -hmm. it's Connect. So a lot of people may not actually realize Uh, that they are benefiting from Obamacare. But I think what's really happened is, is that in the, you know, the the act was passed in 2010, the exchanges and Medicaid expansion started in 2014. So it's either been around seven years or three or four years, depending on how you look at it. But people's expectations for health care really, or, or health insurance, has really changed. And so... Can you go into that you know, a little bit? How has it changed? Yeah, you know, in the past, there wasn't an uproar over insurers telling people who had an illness that they just couldn't get coverage. Mm-hmm. And that was acceptable. And now it, it is much less acceptable, you know, if it's acceptable at all. And, and the pre-existing conditions protections is a huge, huge. benefit that, that we have all, you know, we never know when even those of us, you know, the majority, the vast majority of Americans are covered under uh, employer plans, 150 million or more. But we never know when we're going to lose our job, God forbid, and we may end up finding ourselves on the individual market or we may have a loved one or a friend on the individual market, and we don't want to find out that because they may have had, you know, an illness several years ago or many years ago, they're no longer coverable, you know, and that was the situation. That was the norm in many places in the past, and that's not just not acceptable anymore. And then there's been a real debate over whether people who have, you know, lower-income people who can't afford coverage, should they just be left out in the cold? I mean, Medicaid does not cover adults in many states, in the states now that did not expand. And prior to Obamacare, low-income adults could not afford coverage, and there was just no options for them. And that is seen as less acceptable now. You know, you saw a lot of the more moderate Republican governors saying, look, this is really helping all of the people in our states that are dealing with the opioid addiction and, you know, mental health issues, substance abuse, 
Medicaid covers those folks. So that's why you have John Kasich from Ohio, or you know, who ran for president as a Republican, saying, look, there are 700,000 people in my state who have benefited from Medicaid. I'm not just throwing them out on the street. And so one of the arguments um, for insurance was that if you don't have insurance, then you often wait until a condition gets mm-hmm. bad, and then you go to the emergency room where it's incredibly, tremendously expensive. But they have to treat you. But they have to treat you. Do you know if they hospitals have to stabilize you? They don't have ah, to treat you. Ah. So, so do you know if there's any um, if hospitals then have been saving on emergency room visits and costs as a result? It's actually an interesting debate, and I think it depends on the hospital. Overall, Mm -hmm. yes, it's benefited hospitals, and that's why they, particularly for Medicaid expansion, they've pushed very hard for Medicaid expansion in many states. You'll see that the the state hospital associations are some of the big lobbyists uh, in that area. But what you also see, though, is a lot of people, and this is, This is partially in the individual market, but it's also among employer plans. I'm sure everyone, maybe maybe not at Wharton, but I know here and other places, employer plans have also been raising deductibles. So you have a lot of people who have deductibles of $3,000 or $2,000 or so. And so what hospitals are finding out is that the, the people who are insured are still not able to necessarily pay because they have huge oh, deductibles. Yeah. So you have their charity care, their care where they, which they write off because you have low-income people coming in, you know, poor people coming in who just can't pay, and the hospitals realize that, and they just write off the debt. That's going down in, in the states that expanded because you have more people covered by Medicaid, and, and it covers most of their, almost all of their needs. But for people who come in with either individual plans or employer-based plans with these high deductibles, they're, they're still seeing a lot of bad debt, the hospitals, because people just can't pay the deductibles. Timmy, I'm going to ask you to bear with me as I go through this rambling <laughs> thought process. Are we, are we getting to the dumb questions? I haven't <laughs> heard any yet. <laughs> or the long one. It might be the long one. Um, okay. So we had um, we had a guest on a few weeks ago, not in the healthcare insurance market, but more in the homeowners and renters insurance market, who's uh-huh. really trying to disrupt it with technology and um, thinking about how the incentives in the insurance market are not aligned. I mean, they they want to keep their money and, and yeah. <laughs> put it put it in the market to and keep their profits versus paying out on plans. And so that I also am reflective of. Um, the broader capital markets. I mean, the majority of the long-term assets in the world are held by insurance companies writ large. Um, and so you sort of think about, okay, um, I guess my question around this, and this might be more personal um, than it is based on facts, but um, is our anger, <laughs> is our frustration with with this issue, as complex as it is, is it right? You know, are, are we targeting the right people? I, I guess, you know, insurance companies like my my deductibles are going up with my uh my employee based uh premium but mm-hmm. uh you know like where am i am i mad at the government and obamacare for that you know it's healthcare high healthcare costs is a major issue in this country and there are many sources and everyone blames everyone else the insurers blame pharma and you know pharma blames the insurers and you know people blame hospitals for being inefficient and you know, people blame doctors for charging $300 an hour or $500 an hour, et cetera. That, that's, that's a huge issue. But in looking at the insurers, and I'm not 
trying to, you know, say the insurers are not at fault. But one of the other things that Obamacare put in on insurers is something called the medical loss ratio, or MLR. So insurers are actually required to pay at least 80% of their premiums collected on patient care. So that is an attempt to try to rein in some of the you know, profits or marketing or administrative costs that insurers bear. So now, yes, you know, there is an argument, and then we've seen the massive salaries that insurers, CEOs receive. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not at all trying to be an advocate for them. But there, there are curbs on what insurers can actually make. And, uh, you know, and, and as we've seen, at least in Obamacare, it was seen as being this great, uh, you know, new market for them. They were going to have so many customers, et cetera. And they have struggled to actually price properly their plans, and they've lost millions and millions of dollars initially on Obamacare. They're seeing that stabilized now, and, they, you know, they're getting the pricing right. But it's not that they're making tons of money on them, you know, and looking at the uh, their earnings reports, you know, they're just basically breaking even now a lot in the Obamacare market, if not, you know, having small losses. And I want to shift the question uh, maybe away from the the formalities of Obamacare to thinking about health and medicine more broadly. You know, it it seems like a lot of of the uh, structure now is around uh, treating things when they, they occur rather than on preventative medicine and trying to keep people healthy. How do we how do we make a shift towards that? So it really is focused on, you know, staying healthy rather than treating illness. I you know I mean this and this is my view personally is that America is not very big on anything preventative. <laughs> I think you may be right. Yeah. Or healthcare or anything that we do, but you know this is this is one of the issues and doctors are struggling with it not only in terms of not getting people sick to begin with, but after people are sick and have diabetes or have high blood pressure or high cholesterol, how do they get people who've already had that scare to just change their lifestyle and, you know, and uh, start eating healthy, healthier, start exercising, et cetera? I mean, that's, that's one of the issues that, that medicine is confronting, and I think one of the things that they're trying to do and again, I know you want to take it away from Obamacare, but this is one of the things that the Affordable Care Act did look at and did place incentives again. You know, a lot of screenings now hmm. are free for everyone. So everyone can Like get mammograms, right? Yeah. Mammograms, uh, cholesterol, uh, colonoscopies. Uh, you know, you get your one wellness visit a year for everybody. And that's it, whether you have an employer plan or whether you have individual plan, again, the Affordable Care Act didn't just affect those, you know, 10 million people or so that are on the individual market. Everyone in employer plans can now get free colonoscopies and free mammograms and such. So that was an effort to try to bring in more mm-hmm. uh, preventative care. And then also hospitals are being incentivized to make sure that they don't have people readmitted for care for incidents that they had. So they want to make sure that they're doing the proper things and following up as needed to make sure that people who have, you know, heart attacks or have whatever condition they have don't wind up back in the hospital after 30 days. But there's a lot of effort now for case management in people who are actually sick. 
And I'm sure, you know, I've seen here at, uh, at Time Warner, there's efforts to flag people who may have risk factors. So, you know, there's incentives, there are wellness incentives to, you know, uh, take a survey and if they see someone who has a little, who's a little overweight or maybe has high blood pressure or high cholesterol, you know, they may have a nurse call, call and say, you know, let's talk about your diet. Let's talk about your exercise. And that annoys and me. Right. <laughs> so some people see it as an intrusion and some people see it as a benefit. Yeah. But no, it's funny. I actually I have I have really high cholesterol. I'm I'm a older millennial, so I'm not uh, you know, I shouldn't. I think it's genetic. But I went to a cardiologist mm-hmm. and he was like, I don't see many people like you. So it was sort of interesting. <laughs> I think he might be tracking me now uh, to make, you know, to see how I'm changing and, and what happens. But um, it is mm-hmm. I can see I, I do work very closely with Cheryl and I can see how she would be uncomfortable with some of these <laughs> ideas. I um, know that I'm very much an introvert. <laughs> but but Tammy, I wanted I do want to come back to Obamacare and I wanted to come back to sort of the policy and, and congressional conversations because I'm I'm a little bit of a policy wonk myself. Um, mm-hmm. are, is the healthcare debate cannot be over. Um, <laughs> are we, you know, are we from your reporting, do you expect that we'll revisit this in terms of bipartisan fixing or, you know, is, is repeal still on the table? What do you think really is sort yeah, of on the docket? Happen? You know, right now the immediate, what's immediately going to happen, it looks like stabilizing, but will it even happen in time? The insurers have to file there. They basically have a, a little over a week to finalize their rates. Whoa. Their rate a, week from, a week from now? They, they have September 5th. Oh, wow. When the insurers have to finalize their it, for those insurers in the 39 states that go through healthcare.gov. So the, the states like New York and Connecticut and certain states that have their own uh, exchanges, they have their own deadlines. But generally, the deadline for most states is September 5th for the insurers to finalize their rate requests. And then they have to sign contracts, unless HHS changes this, they have to sign contracts by September 27th for next year, and then they're locked in. So, you know, there are still a lot yeah. of concerns that insurers have out there. There's the cost-sharing subsidies, which are these subsidies that go for uh, lower-income people. It reduces their deductibles and their co-pays. Uh, there was a the big court case over this, so their legality is in question. And right now the Trump administration is paying them month to month. The administration just agreed to make the August payments earlier this week, uh, but they haven't said anything on the September payments, and insurers are very nervous about this. Uh, you know, there's some And these folks don't like uncertainty when it comes they to these types like of risks. Who does? They have to deal with a lot, enough uncertainty <laughs> yeah. in terms of their patients. They don't want to have to deal with it in terms of the policy coming out of Washington. Yeah. So, you know, we they have another week and a half or so to figure out what exactly they're going to do to to protect themselves against the potential end to these cost-sharing payments. They also don't know what the Trump administration is going to do in terms of the individual mandate. Again, they want the individual mandate enforced because that's what brings in the healthier people that offset the sick because many people in the individual market are sicker and and the insurers need these healthier people to offset the cost. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the big question that all of us, you know, who are covering Obamacare are waiting to see in our doing reporting on is what happens with open enrollment. You know, we have open enrollment starting on November 1st. The Trump administration has already cut it in half from three months to six weeks. And the under the Obama administration, you saw a lot of advertising, marketing, outreach. 
They gave money to local community groups to go out into the, you know, the neighborhoods and, and get people to enroll. There were also a lot of help for people who needed, you know, hand-holding to enroll. It's not easy to enroll in health insurance. Right. So they had telephone helplines and they had, you know, in-person assistance centers all over the country. So is the Trump administration going to do all of this? Yeah, Tammy, uh, is, know, the, is the rationale behind cutting that the open enrollment period in half? Is it is it a cost savings thing from the government so that if they do provide those services, it's for a shorter period? Like, what's the rationale in cutting cutting the open enrollment period? I mean, there is some reason to, to cut it because it aligns it more with the employer market. And it okay. actually, if you have insurance, you know, regardless of whether it was under the Obama administration and now under the Trump administration, if you get insurance by the 15th of the month, you get it to start the first of the, of the following month. So by ending open enrollment on December 1st, everybody has to, has insurance who enrolled the entire 2018. They start January 1st and they have it the entire year. For those under Obama, you know, under the Obama administration, if you enrolled on January 15th, you didn't actually get insurance until March 1st. Ah. So it makes sense that you know, you want to have people who are insured throughout 2018. See, these are the details the we don't know. This is why we needed you on the show, Tammy. I know. <laughs> right. So, so there is a reason for it. And, you know, presumably, if you're going to sign up for insurance, what is it? Why do you need three months to sign up? You might as well just take six weeks to sign up. Sure. So you're going to sign up. But, you know, there there are people who really need to be encouraged to sign up. And we have already seen the Trump administration has been doing things to that will likely dampen enrollment. I mean, last year and right after they took office um, in, you know, on January 20th was the inauguration. And a few days later, they pulled all of the ads uh, for uh, that were, were telling people that enrollment ended at the end of the month. So that is a crucial time to get these stragglers to enroll is in the final days of, of enrollment season. And the Trump administration pulled all of those ads. And they've ended two contracts with marketing companies that are going to be promoting or that would have been promoting open enrollment for 2018. So those contracts are gone. We don't know what's going to happen going forward. They've also been changing, you know, language on their websites, you know, getting rid of of certain things that might, uh, you know, encourage people to, to sign up or to find out about the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, it's, it's a lot going on. Potentially going to be a problem for next year. So while the folks in in Washington may be looking at stabilizing things, and you know, it's I personally think it's a bit doubtful that they'll be able to actually do something by the September 27th because it doesn't give them a lot of time to get it through both houses and uh, you know through the White House. Uh, you know, there's um, on top of the debt ceiling, on top of funding the government, on top of there are a few other things happening in Washington in the next couple of weeks. But you know, 2018 remains an open question, in, in terms of how many people will actually enroll. Mm. Well, Tammy, we're going to have to end our session now. I think we need to make sure we get you back on when when something happens, so we can explain and all the changes and, and everything. Exactly. Thank you so much. It's been great. When we come back, Nick and I will be having our open session. If you want to give us a call, if you want to talk about, um, well, maybe not healthcare because we're losing our expert, but if you want to talk about some of the issues and just uh, let us know about the social impact uh, happenings that you're seeing, give us a call, 1-844-WARDEN, 844-942-7866. This is Dollars and Change, powered by the Wharton School. 
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.